Chapter Twenty Seven of the Snow Burner by Henry Oyen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Twenty Seven, On the Trail of Fortune. Reivers traveled steadily for an hour at the best pace that was in him. It was not a good pace, for he was far from being in his old physical condition and the lift and swing of a snowshoe will cramp the calves and ankle tendons of a man grown soft from long bed-lying, no matter how cunning may be his stride. He swore a little at first over his slow progress. He was like a wolf suddenly released from a trap, who desires to travel far, swiftly and instantly, and who finds that the trap has made him lame. Reivers wanted to put the MacGregor's cabin, and the scenes about it, which might remind him of Hattie, behind him with a rush. But the rush, he soon found, threatened to cripple him, so he must perforce give it up. The trail that he had set out to make was not one that any man, least of all one recently convalescent, could hope to cover in a single burst of speed. He was going to the winter camp of the people of Tilly, the squaw. The camp lay somewhere in the northwest. How far away he did not know, and it was no part of his plans to arrive at the camp of the Chippewas depleted in energy and resource. The role he had set out to play now called for the character of the snow-burner at his best, dominant, unconquerable. Therefore, when he found that his first efforts at speed threatened to cripple him with the treacherous snowshoe cramp, he resigned himself to a pace which would have shamed him had he been in good condition. It was poor snowshoeing, but at the end of an hour he had placed between himself and all possible sight of Hattie MacGregor the first ragged rock ramparts of the Deadlands, and he was content. On the western slope of a low ridge he unstrapped his snowshoes and sat down on a bare boulder for a rest. His heart throbbed nervously from his exertion and his lungs gasped weakly. But with each breath of the crisp air his strength was coming back to him, and in his head the brains of the snow-burner worked as of old. He smiled with great self-satisfaction. He was not considering his condition, was not counting the difficulties that lay in his path. He was merely picturing, with lightning-like play of that powerful mental machinery of his, the desperate nature of the adventure toward which he was traveling. It was desperate enough even to thrill Hell Camp Reavers, for probably never did born adventurer set forth of his own free will on a more deadly more hopeless-looking trail. As he sat on the rock there in the Deadlands, Reivers was in better condition than on his flight from Cameron Dam Camp to this extent. The bullet hole in his shoulder was healed, and he had recuperated from the fever brought on by exposure and exhaustion. That was all. He was still the bare man with empty hands, he possessed nothing in the world but the clothes he stood in, the food on his back, and the gift snowshoes on his feet. He had not even a knife that might be called a weapon, for the case knife that old MacGregor had given him upon parting 
could scarcely be reckoned such. In this condition he was setting forth, first to find a cunningly hidden mine, second to take it and keep it for his own from one shanty Moyer, who treated his henchmen like dogs and was looked up to as a chieftain. The snow-burner lived again as he contemplated the possibility of a clash with Moyer. If what the MacGregors had said was true, Shanty Moyer was a boss man himself. And as instinctively and eagerly as one ten-pronged buck tears straight through timber, swamp, and water to battle with another buck, whose deep-voiced challenge proclaims him similarly a giant, so Reivers was going toward Shanty Moyer. He leaped to his feet with flashing eyes at the thought of what was coming. Then he remembered his weakened condition and sat down again. For the immediate present, until his full strength returned, he must make craft take the place of strength. When he was ready to start again, Reivers took his bearings from the sun, it being a clear day, and laid his trail as straight toward the northwest as the formation of the Deadlands would allow. He slept that night by a hot spring. A tiny rivulet ran unfrozen from the spring southward down into the maze of barren stone, a thread of dark, steaming water wandering through the white, frozen snow. Had he been a little less tired with the day's march, Reivers might have paid more attention to this phenomenon that evening. In the morning he awoke with such eagerness to be on toward his adventure that he marched off without bestowing on the stream more than a casual glance, and later he came to curse his carelessness. Bearing steadily toward the northwest, his course lay in the deadlands for the greater part of the day. Shortly before sundown, he saw with relief that ahead the rocks and ridges gave way to the flat tundra, with small clumps of stunted willows dotting the flatness, like tiny islands in a sea of snow. Reivers quickened his pace. Out on the tundra he hurried straight to the nearest bunch of willows. Even at a distance of several rods the chewed white branches of the willows told him their story and he gave vent to a shout of relief. The caribou had been feeding there. The Chippewas lived on the caribou in winter. He had only to follow the trail of the animals, and he would soon run across the moccasin tracks of his friends, the Indians. Luck favored him more than he hoped for. At his shout there was a crash in a clump of willows a hundred yards ahead, and a bull caribou lumbered clumsily into the open. At the sight of him the beast snorted loudly and turned and ran. From right and left came other crashes, and in the gathering dusk the herd which had been stripping the willows fled in the wake of the sentinel bull, their ungainly gait whipping them out of sight and hearing in uncanny fashion. Reavers smiled. The camp of Tilly's people would not be far from the feeding ground of the caribou. He ate his cold supper, crawled into the shelter of the willows, and went to sleep. Dry, drifting snow half hid the tracks of the caribou during the night, and in the morning he was forced to wait for the late-coming daylight before picking up the trail. 
the herd had gone straight westward, and Reivers followed the signs, his eyes constantly scanning the snow for moccasin tracks, or other evidence of human beings. In the middle of the forenoon, in a birch and willow swamp, he jumped the animals again. They caught his scent at a mile's distance, and Reivers crouched down and watched avidly as they streaked from the swamp to security. To the north of the swamp lay the open, snow-covered tundra, where even the knife-like forehoof of the caribou would have hard time to dig out a living in the dead of winter. To the south lay clumps of brush and stunted trees, ideal shelter and feed. The animals went north. Reavers nodded in great satisfaction. There were wolves or Indians to the south, probably the latter. Accordingly, he turned southward. Toward noon he found his first moccasin track, evidently the trail of a single hunter who had come northward, but not quite far enough, on a hunt for caribou. The track looped back southward and Reavers trailed it. Soon a set of snowshoe tracks joined the moccasins, and Reavers, after a close scrutiny had revealed the Chippewa pattern in the snow, knew that he was on the right track. The tracks dropped down on the bed of a solidly frozen river and continued on to the south. Other tracks became visible. When they gathered together and made a hard-packed trail down the middle of the river, Reavers knew that a camp was not far away and grew cautious. He found the camp as the swift winter darkness came in, a group of half a dozen teepees set snugly in a bend of the river, one large teepee in the middle, easy recognizable as that of Tilly, the squaw, chief of the band. Reavers sat down to wait. Presently he heard the camp dogs growling and fighting over their evening meal and knew that they would be too occupied to notice and announce the approach of a stranger. Also at this time the people of the camp would be in their teepees, supping heavily if the hunter's god had been favorably inclined, and gnawing the cold bones of yesterday if that irrational deity had been unkind. By the whining note in the growls of the dogs, Reivers judged that the latter was the case this evening, and when he moved forward and stood listening outside the flap of the big teepee, he knew that it was so. Within, an old squaw's treble rose faintly in a whining chant, of which Reivers caught the despairing motif. Black is the face of the sun, awo! The time has come for the old to die, awo, awo! There is meat only to keep alive the young, awo! We who are old must die, awo, awo, awo! Any other white man but Reivers would have shuddered at the terrible primitive story which the whale told. Reivers smiled. His old luck was with him. The camp was short of meat, and the hunters had given up hopes of making a kill. With deft, experienced fingers, he unloosed the flap of the teepee. There was no noise. Suddenly the old squaw's wail ceased. Those in the teepee looked up from their scanty supper. 
the snow burner was standing inside the teepee, the flap closed behind him. There were six people in the teepee, the old squaw, an old man, two young hunters, a young girl, and Tilly. They were gathered around the firestone in the center, making a scant meal of frozen fish. Tilly, by virtue of her position, had the warmest place and the most fish. No one spoke a word as they became aware of his presence. Only on Tilly's face there came a look in which the traces of hunger vanished. Reivers stood looking down at the group for a moment in silence. Then he strode forward, thrust Tilly to one side, and sat down in her place. For Reivers knew Indians. "'Feed me,' he commanded, tossing his grub-bag to her. He did not look at her as she placed before him the entire contents of the bag. Having served him, she retired and sat down behind him, awaiting his pleasure. Reivers ate leisurely of the bountiful supply of cold meat that remained of his supply. When he had his fill, he tossed small portions to the old squaw, the old man, and the young girl. "'Hunters are mighty!' he mocked in the Chippewa tongue, as the young men avidly eyed the meat. They kill what they eat. The meat they do not kill would stick in their mighty throats. Last of all, he beckoned Tilly to come to his side and eat what remained. Men eat meat, he continued, looking over the heads of the two hunters. Old people and children are content with frozen fish. When I was here before, there were men in this camp. There was meat in the teepees. The dogs had meat. Now I see the men are all gone. One of the hunters raised his arms above his head, a gesture indicating strength, and let them fall resignedly to his side, a sign of despair. The caribou are gone, Snowburner, he said dully. That is why there is no meat. All gone. The god of good kills has turned his face from us. Little bear, to the old man, how long have our people hunted the caribou here? Little bear lifted his head, his wizened, smoked face, more a black carved mask than a human countenance. Big bear, my father, was an old man when I was born, he said slowly. When he was a boy so small that he slept with the women, our people came here for the winter hunt. "'Oh, little bear!' chanted the hunter. "'Great was your father, the hunter. Great were you as a hunter in your young days. Was there ever a winter before when the caribou were not found here in plenty?' The old man shook his head. "'Oh, snow-burner!' said the hunter. These are the words of Little Bear, whose age no one knows. Always the caribou have been plenty here along this river in the winter. Longer than any old man's tales reach back have they fed upon the willows. They are not here this winter. The gods are angry with us. We hunt. We hunt till we lie flat on the snow. We find no signs. There are men still here, Snowburner, but the caribou have gone. 
"'Have gone, have gone, have gone, ah woe!' chanted the old squaw. "'Where do you hunt?' asked Reivers tersely. "'Where we have always hunted, where our fathers hunted before us,' was the reply. "'Along the river in the muskeg and bush to the south we hunt. "'The caribou are not there. They are nowhere. "'The gods have taken them away. "'We must die and go where they are.' "'We must go,' wailed the old squaw. "'The gods refuse us meat. We must go.' Her chant of despair was heard beyond the tepee. In the smaller tents other voices took up the wail. The women were singing the death song, their primitive protest and acquiescence to what they considered the irrevocable pleasure of their dark gods. Reivers waited until the last squaw had whined herself into silence. Even then he did not speak at once. He knew that these simple people who for his deeds had given him the expressive name of Snowburner, were waiting for him to speak, and he knew the value of silence upon their primitive souls. He sat with folded arms, looking above the heads of the two hunters. "'You have done well,' he said, nodding impressively, but not looking at the two young men. "'You have hunted as men who have the true hunter's heart.' But what can man do when the gods are against him? The gods are against you. They are not against me. Tomorrow I slay you your fill of caribou. Snowburner, whispered one of the hunters in the awe-stricken silence that followed this announcement. There are no caribou here. Are you greater than the gods? Reivers looked at him and at the light in his eyes the young man drew back in fright. "'Tomorrow I give you your fill of meat,' he said slowly. "'Not only enough for one day, but enough for all winter. Each teepee shall be piled high with meat. Even the dogs shall eat till they want no more. I have promised. I alone. Do you,' he pointed at the hunters, Bring me tonight the two best rifles in the camp. If they do not shoot true tomorrow, do not let me find you here when I return from the hunt. And now the rest of you, all of you, go from here. Go, I will be alone. They rose and went out obediently, except Tilly, who watched Reaver's face with avid eyes as the young girl left the teepee. Then she crawled forward and touched her forehead to his hand, for Reivers had not bestowed upon the girl a glance. Presently the hunters came back and placed their Winchesters at his feet. He examined each weapon carefully, found them in perfect order and fully loaded, and dismissed the men with a wave of his arm. Tilly sat with bowed head, humbly waiting his pleasure but Reivers rolled himself in his blanket and lay down alone by the fire. "'I wish to sleep warm,' he said. "'See that the fire does not go out till the night is half gone. Be ready to go with me in the hour before daylight. Have the swiftest and strongest team of dogs and the largest sledge hitched and waiting to bear us to the hunt. Go. 
Now I sleep. End of chapter 27 Recording by Roger Moline